This program is a proud member of Univaz. Unified, unique voices. Learn more at univazpods.net. What's going on? You are listening to Talk About Gay Sex. I'm your host, Steve Rodriguez, letting you know that we are going to be live. That's right, live on our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash talkaboutgaysex next Wednesday, September 5th at 8 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. Join us with questions. We're going to be fielding many of your questions. We might have a guest or two, but we're really excited to launch our brand new Patreon page. It's a membership platform. We've got all these extra perks that I think you are going to love. So remember, we are live next Wednesday, September 5th. And join us on our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash talk about gay sex. This week, I thought I'd share with you a um, a rebroadcast of one of my favorite episodes this season. It was, or this year, I should say, it was episode 57 with Dr. Doug Kimmel. He's a retired psychologist and he taught here in New York City at City College. Um, most of his research, though, and why I wanted to revisit this episode was it has to do with aging and his work is looking at aging uh, older gay men. He is responsible for starting one of the founding members of SAGE and SAGE is improving the lives of LGBTQ aging adults Um which is necessary as we get older to always look after our um, our older brothers and and look after them. It is their 40th anniversary. In this episode, you'll hear him talk about the BDSM culture as he is an advocate and why he recommends it for many aging gay men. He also quotes John Money, another sexologist, psychologist, who is responsible for the quote, sex is really as unique as a person's fingertip. I'm going to let that sit for you. I hope you enjoy episode 57. If you've heard it before, there's so many things Dr. Kimmel recommends, different documentaries, and changes our viewpoints on the way we think about our sexuality as we age as gay men. So have a listen to that. And join us for a brand new episode next Tuesday, as always. But also join us the following day, Wednesday, September 5th, as we will be live at 8 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. Just go on to our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash talkaboutgaysex, and you'll see us live. And you can ask us questions, and we will get to them. For now, it's episode 57 with Dr. Doug Kimmel. This is Steve Rodriguez, host of Talk About Gay Sex. Um, very excited today to have my very special guest, Douglas Kimmel. He is a retired psychologist. And first of all, Douglas, how are you? Well, thank you. Happy to be back in New York after all these years. Nice, nice. Yeah, because you are currently in Maine? I'm currently retired from the practice of psychology up in Maine, but I taught at City College in New York for many years, so I know New York very well, and it's great to be back. Oh, good. exactly. And you picked a good time. It's spring, so um, hopefully we won't get too many showers. But I want to get into it with you, because today we are talking about um, your work is really with aging within the uh, LGBT. Um, world, isn't it? Especially with older gay men. Older gay men. That okay. was my initial research and uh, has really been my specialty. 
Great, and you also were one of the founding members of Sage, uh, which I was happy to learn about. Which, right. for those that don't know, Sage is the country's largest and oldest organization dedicated to improving the lives of uh, LGBT older adults. And it was founded in 1978. It was, and this is 40th anniversary. Oh, congratulations! And coming back into town in a couple of weeks for a board reunion, and it's going to be uh, on the exact day that we were incorporated 40 years ago in New York State. Wow, wow! What was the first um, impetus in 1978 that you? Um, because you must, you were obviously a lot younger. And what um, it was? It, did it have to do with your studies, or was it more? Um, what was it that you wanted to start, Sage? Well, it got a bit of a story. I was teaching a course on the psychology of aging at City College and naturally was interested in the field. Um, I was also, I've been gay longer than it's been popular. (laughs) And so uh, we were involved in some of the early marches and some of the early activities around uh, LGBT uh, acceptance and civil rights. And it dawned on me that one of the big clubs that was being used to beat us over the head was the idea that it may be fine if you're gay when you're young, but wait until you're old and lonely and depressed. Was this a, you're not talking of um, Stonewall, are you? Well, uh, this was right after Stonewall. Okay. This was, um, you know, I got my PhD in 1970 from the University of Chicago when homosexuality was still a mental illness. It was still illegal in every state except Illinois, and it was clearly a sin in every church. So I came to New York with my husband. We had had a real uh, church wedding in 1969 in Colorado. Wow. With a minister and the whole nine yards, and a honeymoon out in San Francisco. Obviously not legal at that time. It was not legal at that time, but it was a full-fledged wedding ceremony in a church with the minister and his wife and a small congregation. Wow, talk about ahead of your time, mister. (laughs) Indeed, yes. Yes, it was. And are you still married? We are still married. We'll be celebrating our 49th anniversary in August. Wow, And we were legally married in Maine in 2013, the first anniversary of a... Colorado wedding after it became legal in Maine. That must have been very emotional after all these years. To I mean, unless in your eyes, it um, you were always were married, so it was just now something that you know became real for the rest of the world, perhaps. Well, you'd be surprised what a difference it does make. I finally had a name I could use for him instead of partner or <laughs> lover, or he became my husband. Yes, yes. And that all of a sudden said everything that needed to be said. Right. And made such a difference. And uh, we were in a small town in Maine, but very active in the church and in the community. And so the church was full, probably for the first time in years. Right. And uh, at that time, there was an open to gay minister. So it was a wonderful celebration. Wow. And uh, when we kissed after the service, which we repeated from the 1969 script. Yes. um, Everyone gave us a standing ovation. Wow. And it was really... Uh, an amazing experience. 
to, that's so interesting. I mean, that's amazing. Congratulations. Um, it really is a, a year of uh, milestones. Um, we were talking offline before we started the show about a play I just saw uh, that's here in town, 217 Boxes of Dr. Henry Anonymous. And it's really the story of Dr. John Fryer, mm-hmm. who in 1972... Um, was responsible for uh, the removal of um, homosexuality off of what list was it? Was it on the psychiatric? The American Psychiatric Association had a kind of a dictionary of mental illnesses, and um, called the uh, Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. And homosexuality in the second edition was a mental illness. And at that time, uh, the American Psychiatric Association held its first symposium on the topic, and there was only one person who was willing in the whole association to speak openly about being a gay psychiatrist, but in order to do so, he had to wear this bizarre costume to disguise his body and his voice. Because he was gay as well. Because they, the stigma against a gay psychiatrist in the American Psychiatric Association was so strong that he had to testify anonymously. Well, and what's interesting, and you learn in, the, in this play, is that he also had to don the mask, too, because he, he if, if homosexuality was currently on this, um, this list, mm-hmm. how could he then um, fight for something to get it off if he's considered um, a deviant in many ways? So right. it was a sort of catch-22 thing. So... Right. To be taken seriously, he donned this mask and and really risked um, many things um, to and and successfully had it removed. Yeah, he was certainly involved in that. So was the uh, psychological research that uh, was conducted and reported first in 1955 by the famous psychologist Evelyn Hooker. Oh, wow! And there's a, a wonderful film about her called "Changing Our Minds: The Life of Evelyn Hooker," and. Uh, in that film, there is a report on his presentation and some film from that actual presentation. Wow, I'm going to watch that for but, sure. But her research showed that back in 1955, when she did a study comparing normal homosexual men who were involved in the Mattachine Society and other groups right. out in Los Angeles right. with heterosexual men, the experts on the tests being used at that time could not differentiate one group from the other. And so that was the empirical basis on which the American Psychiatric Association used based a lot of to their... make their decision. Okay. And that was actually an, a vote of the board of directors that uh, like they didn't have it. enough um, compelling research to keep it on there anymore. Correct. Yes. The board of directors voted that way. Right. And a number well, of members however objected. However, they felt you know whether how they felt you know for or against it um, there just wasn't enough um, research to back it up to keep it on there exactly that was the reason that it was finally removed wow and uh, Charles Silverstein who is a psychologist who practiced for many years in New York City and founded the Institute for Human Identity Mm-hmm. Um, he was one of the people for psychology who was on the panel that was presenting the evidence to the board of the American Psychiatric Association. Wow. So he is uh, kind of our hero in psychology for presenting the research of Evelyn Hooker to that board. But the board was uh, willing to vote in favor of that based on the empirical evidence. Exactly. 
And there were a number of psychiatrists in the field, like Charles Sakuides and others, who strongly objected because they were making their career out of treating, uh, treating homosexuals. Oh, wow, I see. And so they forced an actual vote of the membership on whether or not to accept the board of directors' decision. And the membership vote was in favor of removing it, but wow. by this- a small number. Yeah, because somehow their business was now being threatened. Um, yeah, and, and their whole ideology of you know, of course, normal homosexuality not existing was, because the only homosexuals they knew were people who were in misery, very depressed, or right. in mental hospitals, suicidal. I'm or sure, suicidal. Yes. And so they had that very skewed view right. of homosexuals. So when Evelyn Hooker wanted back in the 1950s to do a study of normal homosexual men the National Institute of Mental Health flew out a team to see who this kook was that thought there was such a thing as a normal homosexual man. Right. Although we know normal is, is all um, relative, but yes. Well, but, but I know what you mean, yes. You know, she meant not institutionalized, yes, not in treatment. Right, right. Functioning in the community just like anybody else. Right. Well, two opportunities to learn about this. You can see the play, 217 Boxes of Dr. Henry Anonymous, here in New York this week. Um, And what's the movie that you're talking about again? Changing Our Minds, The Life of Evelyn Hooker. Great. And I'll put links up for that. Um, A little bit more about Sage. Um, You know, how how have you seen it evolve? Because certainly when you started in 1978, you know, obviously, you, you're a prime example of, um, although ahead of your time, you got married when we didn't even have marriage. Um, but certainly, some people, um, just because life and culture has changed and viewpoints, how has Sage, you know, grown and evolved since it started in 1978? Well, as I said a few minutes ago, my impetus for doing this was the stigma that was placed on older gay people, particularly older gay men. And that hasn't changed a whole lot, maybe, in some ways. And it hasn't changed a whole lot, but I decided that the best thing I could do was to use my research skills to interview a group of older gay men, and like Evelyn Hooker, to show that these men were functioning just as well as anybody else at that age. Yes. And this then became... um, an important study. I reported not only in academic journals, but also in the Christopher Street magazine so that ordinary folks in the community could know about it. And then I was introduced by a colleague to a woman by the name of Chris Omvig, who with a gay student colleague at Hunter School of Social Work was doing a class project, and they decided jointly to work on a social services program. And so the professor of that class was also teaching at adjunct at City College, so she introduced us to each other. Chris and I had coffee. Uh, Richard Gold hosted us in his apartment in the village, and we had an organizing meeting in 1977 uh, to think about ways in which we could provide services to older gay men and lesbians because in those days it was a great stigma And there were a lot of lonely old lesbians and gay men, we thought. And we also felt that if we are going to be building a community, we needed to have attention paid to the most vulnerable members. And the elderly were the most vulnerable members at that time. 
Right, right. And, you know, and to, so obviously to instill empowerment and that they're still worthwhile. Um, you know, I would argue in general, um, many elders probably share some of the same feelings, whether you're uh, gay or straight or, mm-hmm. or whatever you are. However, you know, because there's such an emphasis often perceived in the gay community with eternal youth and mm-hmm. and the desire that we place on it, um, much due to sexuality, mm-hmm. um, it's mu- I could see it being that much harder. Mm-hmm. And and then you layer in things like you know, you know, the AIDS epidemic, um, mm-hmm. which I'm sure has a lot to do with it as well. Yes. Well, that came later. Um, one of our first presidents was Emery Hetrick, and we actually signed the incorporation papers uh, 40 years ago uh, this month in his apartment. And his partner was Damian Martin, and they went on to found the Hetrick Martin Institute for LGBT Youth wow. and the Harvey Milk School. Oh, wonderful! In New York City, so so we really in this group branched out and focus on the most vulnerable members of the community. Right. So Sage was a success. The Hetrick Martin Institute was a success, and we have really, I think, changed the landscape of social services for LGBT people across oh. the lifespan in in New York City. Nice, nice. Talk, kind of took the baton from what uh, Dr. Fryer sure. <laughs> implemented. Wonderful, wonderful. And we thank you for many of these things. One of the big advantages for me and my husband was that um, Sage instituted gay male brunches once a month. So we went to those. And, of course, we were the young couple that were just, uh, you know, getting started in life. Right. And here were all these other older men, many of whom were in 40- and 50-year relationships. And so they became mentors and role models for us. And in a couple of cases, lifelong friends. Wow, wonderful. So it was... Um, Really, a tremendous gift this age gave to us. Um, it I continues w- to because it's still around, which is wonderful. Yes, and it has affiliates now in I think twenty some states and uh, a variety of programs. I helped to get a group in Maine started called Sage Maine, and it's just um, a wonderful, wonderful organization and one of the leading figure. Uh, programs for older people in the U.S. in general. Right. That's wonderful. I love that. Um, Switching gears a little bit, I wanted to talk, um, you know, about some of the obvious areas that um, might affect, because it's a gay (laughs) gay podcast, gay sex podcast, um, some of the obvious um, areas that might affect um, aging, and our sexual uh, sexuality, and obviously some of them have to do with our body image as we change. Um, I know when we were riding back and forth, you said sex is kind of like just getting on a bike, um, and I would agree with that. Um, but we have we have a sponsor who's worked with us on the show. Um, they're called Rev, and they administer Trimix, and Trimix is helps men with um, sexual. Um, you know, basically impotence and, and making sure that they can um, get hard again. Right. And um, in talking with Rev and why they started it and through their own, you know, actual, you know, administration of this and research, they've had emotional men just um, sh- share that they thought they were never going to have 
sex again, they weren't going to get hard again, and they kind of just were convinced of writing themselves off from that portion, although some of them would still attend uh, weekends. Uh, there's the MAL Mid-Atlantic Leather. Uh, they just didn't participate in that. So they've tried this and um, with much success, and are it's changing their emotional outlook, and they feel like um, you know they have a, a new... Um, outlook on life and it's really great um I'd talk a little bit about um how, the importance of, of that like sexual health like that well i guess the most interesting finding in my study back in the 70s was that the older gay men in those days talked about enjoying sex more in late life than when they were younger Oh, nice. And this was long before any kind of erectile dysfunction right. medication was available. Exactly. And uh, their logic was that when you're young, all you want is to get it off. Yes. And sometimes as often as possible. In their experience in later life, they were much more focused on the person, much more interested in providing satisfactory sexual experiences for themselves and the partner and focus much more on the person than on the act. Right, right. And I've certainly said this on this show before, um, and you've, we'll talk a little bit more about a paper you did on BDSM. Mm-hmm. Um, but in general, like myself, um, you know, just exploring the fetishes and the various, the leather community, um, many of the fetishes take much more... Um, you know, there's much more foreplay with it. You have to learn mm-hmm. much of the ropes um, if you're going to get flogged, which is a leather sure. um, kind of whipping, I guess, apparatus. Well, you have to learn the ropes to do bondage, too. Exactly, and it takes time, <laughs> and you don't just jump into it, and oftentimes it's not the actual um, intercourse that is taking place. It's, it's a whole... Um, embodiment of senses that really you have to take time and it it can be different age groups and like you said I don't think you always um, when you're younger you just want to get off and you're probably a little bit more wiser and explorative as you get older so at least that's my my experience hopefully hopefully yeah and uh, you know you mentioned earlier about body image you know if you're wearing a blindfold it doesn't make any difference what the body image is true yes so I mean that's a simple kind of way of thinking about uh, why BDSM is not especially age-related. Right. It's much more skill-related and relationship and trust-related. Yes. So for older people who want to continue on in some sort of a sexual relationship, that's one sort of skills that one can develop. That was part of the point of that paper I presented a few years ago to a group doing IML. Out of Chicago. Oh, wonderful. International Mr. Leather. Yeah. But the, um, the larger point, I think, is that sex is really as unique as a person's fingerprint. Interesting, yes. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was actually a quote from John Money, who did so much research on sexuality. Um, but the basic idea is that if you want to have good sex, you need to both understand your own fingerprint right. and the fingerprint of the person that you are Engaging. with. Right. And one of the big advantages of being a gay man in general 
is that we are creating our own roles and relationships and culture and styles. We don't have to follow the heterosexual model. Correct, yes. And that's true whether it's regard to aging. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the advantages of aging as a gay person is you have to get to think about it. You can't just assume that you've got kids who are going to come in and take care of you. Right. You've got to make plans. You've got to get a will. You've got to have a power of attorney. You've got to have a you know, health care directive because it doesn't necessarily mean that just because you're married or that because you have a good friend who thinks he will take care of you that it's guaranteed. Correct. We create our own family of choice. Absolutely. In our own communities. And that's as true in the you know, sexual realm as it is in the aging realm. Correct. Correct. Um, the other thing is that much of the heterosexual world is focused on having a hard cock. <laughs> yes. For men. And that's why these uh, enhancements are very popular because to the extent that we have internalized the heterosexual model of what sex is, then that's important. Right. And we can talk more about how people develop their sexual attitudes and so forth, but there certainly is a group of people for whom sex is fucking. Right, exactly. And fucking requires a hard cock. And if you're going to have a hard cock, you need to keep using it. You need to be healthy. Your blood pressure needs to be under control so that you, I mean, erectile dysfunction is one indicator of some uh, circulatory problems. Right. And uh, these medications that can be used often have warnings about other circulatory ha- problems. Sure, yeah. And uh, the other thing is that often poppers and things like that are used as stimulants to enhance sexual activity, which also affects the uh, circulatory system. Right, so you can compile too many um, things on your body that mm-hmm. are not going to work for you, yes. Right, and so uh, adopting the heterosexual model is not necessarily the most advantageous model for gay men because of the risks involved in that, not to mention the risk of HIV transmission. Right. I mean, there's a the new PrEP. yes availability and of course if one has reached uh, zero level of infection probably there's not going to be any risk but one never knows correct who one has had sex with last week right and, and other so, uh, rates of we've talked about on this show um, the increase of certain STDs right now mm-hmm. um, with potentially the usage of PrEP um, or not using condoms I should say right But, um, yes, exactly. And so the AIDS epidemic, in my time, really, I mean, it followed a few years after we got SAGE going. Right. But it really created the need for finding fun ways to have sex without risking infection. Right. And BDSM is one of those ways that I think became fairly popular. Yes, exactly. And um, it's funny because it was also... uh, in some ways looked maybe as the cause, um, you know, for people getting HIV back in the 70s. I think there was, um, we did another show, or uh, there's a documentary 
that is about the Folsom Street Fair. And they, in this film, they talk about the divide of certain gays in San Francisco that were sort of of the Harvey Milk team. And then when the AIDS epidemic came out, there was this need for um, funding for people that were getting sick. And the one group that wasn't getting much funding that needed more help was the kind of leather community. And it was really the lesbians um, that kind of stepped up to the plate to help because many of the gays at that time were saying, well, it's because you you and the leather community are you know, going to these leather bars and having sex, although I don't think that was true. So it was an interesting divide at Le- that time. Leather bars was probably very broadly defined. Yes. It probably included places like, um, oh, what was that, the famous one in, in New York? Mineshaft. Yes, right. Uh-huh. Sex club. Like Mineshaft, yeah, which right. is really much more of a sex club than yeah. a BDSM club. Right, true. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, uh, of course, bathhouses were the main way in which it was being transmitted. Right. Because people didn't know. And, um, right. Due to lack of education. And, yeah. and again, a lot of people kind of adopted that heterosexual model that one should be monogamous with one's partner, except in certain limited ways, or go out and cheat. And so, you know, kind of that model, again, brought some limitations to how much one could play in one's own relationship to keep it interesting after the first two or three years. Right, right. Um, not to put you on the spot, but you have been married since, um, how long have you told us? Yeah, you're cel- going to celebrate. 49 years in, in August. Wow. And have you personally seen your own um, sexuality with your husband change throughout the years? I mean, you have to have. Oh, of yes. course. Obviously. I mean, one of the things that I think people need to think about as they get older is to think about their life in terms of chapters. And we are writing our own chapters right? as we are getting older. Right, we're our own editors, and yes. And so what was, you know, the way we thought and behaved and responded when we were in our 20s or 30s is not necessarily of much relevance to the ways you think and respond when you're in your 40s or 60s or 70s. But then, of course, that's just your book. But then if you're married, you have your your partner's book, too. And, that, you and those writing, two books have to... You're probably writing a, a book together, but yes. also would you argue that you know yes. you each have your own books yes. and you need to check in and read each other's books <laughs> throughout the years? It would be nice if one could. Yes. I don't think that happens very often, but right. it's very important to you know be able to communicate and think about these issues. And you know I think... Certainly, we've been in therapy a couple times with some outstanding therapists who put their finger on what the communication problem was or the issue was or the self-esteem issue was and got things straightened around. Right, right. But in addition to, you know, your own sexuality being as unique as your fingerprint, your partner's sexuality is not going to be the same as yours. Exactly. And that's where, you know, people, I think, get into problems and, you know, breakups. And I'd like to talk with you about open relationships, but go on with what you were saying. Well, the point is that you've got to recognize that you're not going to be exactly compatible and equal. And after two or three years, that romantic thing is going to wear off. And you're going to have to figure out what to do about it. Correct. And every gay couple that I'm aware of does it differently. Right. Figure exactly. out you know how they're going to move to the next chapter, and on and on and on. Right. Right. And um, 
I'm curious to, uh, you know, open relationships have certainly become, you know, um, seen more in our community and uh, we've done some shows on them and and many people um, approach it from different ways sometimes it's a don't ask don't tell sometimes it's they um, people play together um, um, what are your thoughts about that just you know in in your um, in your work it's uh, typical of men to put things into boxes right to think about top and bottom Yes. Dom and sub, uh, open and closed relationships. None of that really makes any particular sense in terms of human sexuality. We are all individuals, and when we are relating with another person, ideally we are relating with that person. Right. And uh, I had a very fine sex instructor. He was uh, a couple years younger than I was when I was in college. Uh, we had a very active gay group in college back in Colorado in the 1960s. Nice. A <laughs> free love time period. Well, yeah, it was kind of. And um, he taught me a number of things about sexuality that most people don't learn. Uh, he said, don't use the love word until you really know the person very well. I like that. We need to date we need to find out their politics. We need to find out their religion. We need to find out their family, who their friends are, and so forth. My sister once said, um, I think it was my sister, that you need to know somebody in every season because that helps. Um, you know, we're all so different, and how we deal with Christmas time as we are when summer approaches, and you know, our shirts are off, and how our tempers and moods swing, and mm-hmm. it's often based on what's going on in the different seasons and then right. and time as well. So. So, yeah, that makes sense. So that was one thing. Uh, the other thing was that he taught me the importance of nonverbal communication. Body, yes, that, exactly. You know, and the advantage of being two men having sex together, and I assume the same is true for two women, is that you are familiar with the body. You know how it feels to stroke the cock. You know how it feels to stroke the balls, uh, the nipples. Uh, sometimes it's sensitive and sometimes not. And so there's a whole lot of exploration one can do with the body to see how it's similar and different from yours right? in a sensual way. And that can change, too. Like, no. you can, yeah. Like, my nipples have all become sensitive as I've gotten older, which they never were before. So, um, yeah. Um, he also taught me that, um, you know, don't do anal sex until you are really ready to allow someone in to your body. Right, right. Not sure that's going to be a one people are practicing today. Yeah, I mean, but. <laughs> it's, but it was a, a good bit of information. Yes. You know, keep it superficial until you're ready to open yourself up. Right. To another person. Exactly. Emotionally, psychologically. Right. As well as physically, that it really was a symbolic kind of act. How would you feel about, um, for example, um, you know, we've talked about it. I was talking with another special guest, Kevin Thomas, um, a couple weeks ago, and we were talking about how um, gays often do approach men different from our heterosexual counterparts. In other words, we'll meet somebody 
off of an app or or in the bar and have sex with them and maybe in pillow talk moments decide oh they're kind of interesting and then realize either it's just it was just that or I kind of want to get to know this person and then go backwards and start the dating process how would um, your professor at the time felt about this sort of the way we approach it you know sex first before dating well he was a professor only in quotes because he was two years younger (laughs) right you know another undergraduate got it got it uh, who was very very uh, wise and uh, he and his partner have been together longer than my partner and I have my husband and I and uh, they're still living in New York wonderful oh that's great having dinner with him tomorrow night excellent excellent so but the um, the point here was that yeah you're going to meet lots of interesting people and how do you then move on from that? And when I was an undergraduate, the idea was that you weren't supposed to have sex with your friends. Right. And I always thought, and he was my best friend, that that's crazy. If you can't have sex with your friends, right. who are you going to have sex with? People you don't like? <laughs> right. People you don't know? People you don't trust? Yeah. So, you know, it turned out for a long time that I did not have any friends that I had not had sex with. Wow, yes. Because I wanted that intimacy. I wanted that ability to be open and trusted and, you know, clear with them that we were both, you know, gay men together. Right. And we were communicating at at those levels. And so, um, you know, another one that uh, became a very good friend, uh, became one of the, I guess, the first openly gay doctor in San Francisco. Oh, wow. And I'm going to go out and visit him in August when we're having conference out All there. your old friends that I'm assuming you had sex with at one point, yes? Yeah, I mean, and everyone had their own story. I mean, he yes. had a terrible struggle with it because he had the idea that gay men were all perverted homophobes that, you know, hang out in bars and attack, you know, innocent young men. Wow, yeah. So it took him a long time to Come around walk to... into a gay bar. Yeah. And, uh, you know, sometimes, you know, we would have, you know, good friendly sex, and he would run out to the toilet and vomit because he was so upset by it. Wow, yeah. And um, so it was a very dramatic kind of struggle, but we were friends. We exactly. knew each other, we supported each other, and we had sex together. Right, right. And so, you know, I was really blessed in learning that sexuality is a normal human way of relating to people you like. Right, exactly. And that's very different from the way a lot of people have learned about their sexuality. Because in my practice, one of the things that I came to see often was that there's a sort of psychological principle called imprinting. That we get imprinted to the kind of sex we had the first time we had it. And that sort of becomes our blueprint? That becomes, you know, what... Or basis, you, yeah, maybe. what you think of when you think of sex. Wow. Um, so hopefully it was a good blueprint. <laughs> well, for me, it was. Okay, good. Yes, but, me too, But, you know, actually. for so many people, right. it was, you know, a fearful encounter, maybe in a Taken advantage toilet, of, or, yeah. Or being, you know, taken advantage Raped, of. But, yeah. but more likely, you know, seeking it out in a public toilet or something in a fearful environment right? in those days. I'm talking now about people in my cohort who are now old. Mm-hmm. 
you know, that's how we met. We tapped our foot in the bathroom to see if anybody was interested in the passive note under the petition. Right, right. And interestingly enough, that's kind of come around back again. Um, one would argue it's always been around, but mm-hmm. there's all these, you know, if you go on many of the Tumblr sites and mm-hmm. there's public sex and, and there's people filming themselves um, meeting guys in sort of the bathroom situations much Mm -hmm. like then Mm -hmm. um how do you make sense of that for something that it was the only way you knew and now that's sort of like um i don't know a fetish again or yeah it becomes a kind of of it becomes a kind of that's what sex is it's anonymous right it's impersonal right it's fearful it's dangerous and it's very hard to form a relationship with but that it was kind of imprinting. True. Um, but if it's just for sex, it was all you knew to find. Um, I'm not sure back mm-hmm. then that you were even looking for relationships either. It was really just for a sexual outlet. Um, and now... Yeah. Well, I was looking for friends. Okay, got it. I was really looking for friends. Right. We had cruisy tea rooms at the university, and that's where I'd go. And you know, that's where I met this friend who taught me so much. Wow. So... But the other thing is that, you know, if you then get into a committed relationship right. with that sort of imprinting, then if you open the relationship up, the person is likely to go to settings like the ones that he thinks of as being exciting. Right, exactly. Those initial kinds of things. And so as one gets older, it's fairly important to start rewriting those chapters mm-hmm. and examining that imprinting to see if that really is the way you want to have sex. Right. At least have an awareness of your own blueprint so that if you are aware of it and you still want to explore that avenue, well, then that's your choice. And, of course, you can do what you want. But if you are particularly, like you're saying, in a relationship and you're going back to that and not maybe informing your partner that you are going back to that, that could then Mm -hmm. potentially create some issues. Or, I mean, you wind up with sort of two unsatisfactory sorts of sex. The partner is no longer satisfactory because it's gotten stale, and so you're running off to the tea rooms or the baths or, you know, Tumblr yes. to uh, find, or grinder, right. to find anonymous sex like you had when you were 18. Right. The first time you had it. Mm-hmm. And you're locked into a kind of pattern that is inherently unsatisfactory. Right, right. And, you know... The partner may be doing something equal. I mean, the partner may have, you know, had lots of sex play as a young person with people who happen to have very large cocks. Right. So he's got this idea that that's what's involved in sex. Right. And maybe his current partner he's in love with and married, but doesn't have exactly a huge cock. Right. Yeah. So. um, So all this has to get you know, kind of work through in, in these chapters as each person rewrites them if they decide to stay together. Right, exactly. That's fascinating, actually. It sounds so simple, but it makes so much sense. Yeah, I mean, it's the advantage we have as gay men to write our own sexual scripts. I like that. We don't have to, you know, fuck in the missionary position with a hard cock. Right. And... Um, you know, there's uh, so many new things that have come along, not only except the BDSM and all that excitement that can come uh, at any age. What you need is expertise rather than, you know, a hunky body. Right. And the other thing is the whole new chastity movement. 
Which, which is? <laughs> um, with the advent of the space program, there's all these modern new plastics and resins that allow one to buy chastity devices to lock up the cock. Oh, yes, exactly. And to, um, you know, engage in that kind of relationship play. Which is much more psychological, um, which is exciting for many, and mm-hmm. I certainly think it is. There's even a... Um, we were laughing at, uh, at a new toy that came out where... It's a butt plug that you would put into your partner, and it's controlled, um, and it can be vibrated, and it's controlled on an app by the dominant. Right. Right. And I don't. I think you need to be within a certain radiant, um, you know, uh, area to control it. But at any time, the dominant can signal it, and it'll, you know, vibrate within the bottoms. Um, Right. Ass. And but there again, you go into dominant and bottom. Sure. It's, yeah. uh, you know, they could be just good friends. That's true. Yeah. Who have decided that, you know, this but guy. But you argue that one would. This guy really gets off on having his butt vibrate right. at work. And so he gives his friend the code. Right. So that, uh, you know, while he's sitting there um, dealing with impertinent people on a call number. He's getting vibrated. Right. Are you suggesting um, that we should, um, you know, be a little bit more open with some of our friends in our life? Indeed. Indeed. I mean, what more fun can friends have than sex? Right, right. And, uh, you know, it's my favorite indoor sport. Sometimes (laughs) outdoor, but certainly indoor. Yes, yes, exactly. And it always has been. Right. Exactly. I like this. I like this. Um... I when, to, when I went to explain to my, my husband you yeah. know, why I wanted to go out to you know, the bondage club or other kinds of places, I said, it's like going bowling. It's recreation. Right. It is it's, like recreation. It's not threatening our relationship. It's not threatening my feelings for you. Right. It's an activity that I enjoy because it is my favorite indoor sport. I like that. I mean, we make so much out of sex. It'd be, you know, it's like, again, we fall into that heterosexual model. All they think about is sex. Right. You know, that's why they were but so... the constraints, up, perhaps, in the societal... About, yeah. you know, about gay men in the armed services because they thought, you know, all those gay men are going to do is think about fucking me. Right, yes. And, you know, that couldn't be further from the truth. Exactly. But that's the way straight men think. Right. That's that heterosexual model that we all grew up in, that the most important thing a man can do is fuck somebody with his penis. Right. Particularly a vagina. <laughs> it doesn't have to be That's anything. What, yeah. Anything that moves. Yeah. Right. Anything that moves. And um, it is really absurd. And if we don't shake ourselves loose from that, we're not going to have a fully satisfying sex life over the lifespan. I agree. I agree. I wanted to kind of... Um, switch courses a little bit and talk a little bit about um, you know daddies and and men as we age that sometimes uh, fall into and I'm talking about daddies like yeah. with air quotes here about sure. um, you know when someone and daddies can be you know you know different age groups there's it's, no there's sometimes explanation for right, any of this I mean sometimes it's literally an, an um, a man of a certain age that has sort of come into this role. Or it's a guy or, who is with somebody who's into nappies. Which nappies, which would Diapers. Be, oh, wow, okay, yeah. I mean, he, you know, there's the, the, the 
guy in diapers might be older than the guy playing daddy. Right. But it's a kind of role play right. that they get into. Yes. Um, it, I guess it's similar. It's, it's a role play issue, um, but particularly with your work with aging and gay men, um, do you think that sometimes some men fall into the category simply because they found they're attract they're of a, a certain age and they're attracting younger men and they're like well hey if if I'm a daddy um, fine it's getting me laid and getting me men um, but they sort of fell into it and then others are sort of creating it um, from a from a role play like do you see the differentiation maybe no. No. <laughs> no I, I, I'm, again... A flat out note, yes. Uh, objecting to boxes and terminology. Right. But One of the advantages of traveling abroad is that you sometimes find cultures like Japan where there's great respect for older people. Yes. And very often Asian men have some kind of a attraction Affinity, yep. to older or heavier or more mature white men because of whatever kind of imprinting experience they had it may have been on television yes it may have been with the occupation right when the American soldiers were there kind of controlling everything there's all kinds of reasons that this might happen you know and this brings up an interesting topic and I wouldn't mind um, digressing on this because we got an email um, recently from a, a guy and I we tried to address it on my last show um and I got a, a little bit of a flack email from somebody listening to it. And essentially the story was uh, a guy wrote in to me, um, he's married, uh, he's a white man, um, and he describes himself as six foot four, 220 pounds, and you know, he, he turns a few heads. Um, he's married to an African-American man, um, and who's also very attractive, according to this emailer. And a few years ago, he was saying, uh, when they were in Japan, they were out at various clubs, and he became known as the the hot gay, uh, the hot white man. And it, uh, and literally, he had to kind of push hands away um, because I think so many of the Japanese gay men were. You know, just so enamored by him, mm-hmm. but it made this writer feel bad for his partner um, because he wasn't getting the same or equal attention. So he wanted us to kind of talk about that. And we were, my co host and I were just simply saying, one, knowing a little bit about um, Asian culture and I you know there is sort of an affinity um, maybe because there are not a lot of white men um, in Asia and so maybe that's one of the reasons but so there was that and then the other thing was that well really you know I don't I think it, it's not a racial issue as much as it's more we're drawn to who we're drawn to. Like, and it's I don't think that anybody on the dance floor that was Japanese was maybe looking at the African American man as um, you know a, a derogatory racial issue as much as they were just more drawn to the white man and white guy. I don't know. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? And that issue, and or what you were basically saying. Well, there are a number of bars in Tokyo, for example, that are specifically for Japanese men who like older or white men. 
Okay, yeah, they're just fully and, blatant about that. Yeah. And that must have been one of the bars that they went into because they're Perhaps. very popular for the gay tourist. Okay. And if you go into one of those bars, yes, you're going to get mobbed by the Japanese men who are, like in any gay bar, waiting for who's new. Right. And so, yeah. Um, and it's, it's, it's wonderful because your yeah. ego goes speaking, way up. Uh, speaking um, as a white man. <laughs> and, you know, many of these Japanese guys are very attractive and very... Uh, engaged in you know making a, a good impression on you right so it's, it's lovely um, the black man probably would be seen as much more exotic right uh, and somewhat unfamiliar so again to be very simplified about it if you get your sexuality and your imprinting from watching TV American TV right you're going to see a lot of sexy white men and relatively few sexy black men. Right. I mean, I guess to, you know, a writer that wrote in and said this is um, sort of a racial issue and um, and endemic of our racial issues in general as a society, um, he is right, I guess, in some ways, if all you are seeing on TV is mostly, you know... Mm-hmm good-looking white men Mm -hmm. that you would therefore have that so in some ways it's true although uh, I don't know that when some of these men are are adorning over the white man they're also you know shunning the black man per per se right Uh, and that's not going to change anytime soon but I, I think probably it was more a matter of someone being very exotic and there might very well have been somebody in that bar who would have been very attracted because of the exoticness of a very good-looking black man. Right. Uh, but uh, they may have been more hesitant because it's less acceptable in that particular setting than going after the white guy. Right. And um, you know, when things are exotic, we tend to be afraid of them or fearful to hold back. Right. Not because of necessarily a racial thing. Um, but rather because of the fear of the different. Right. Uh, and in Japan, I think the black person is much more likely to be seen as different than a racial uh, connotation in the U.S. The um, fact, however, is that Japan is a very racist country with regard to Koreans and Chinese. Oh, I'm sure, yes. And we can't tell one from the other, but they sure can. Right. It happens as much in the Latin community as well. Um, certain Latins, um, you know, you'll hear things like, oh, there's, um, some, you know, animosity between Brazilians and Argentinians in times, and then mm-hmm. Dominicans and Puerto Ricans. We've talked a little bit about it on this show. And so, you know, it can happen within a particular ethnic group. But we talked also about uh, Brian, who was a contact. Brian Davis was, um, yeah, shout out to Brian Davis, who um, introduced me to Dr. um, Kimmel. Yeah, he was, uh, for a while, a very successful television model. Yes. And uh, it was in part because of his exotic white appearance and his long blonde hair. In Japan. In Japan. And so, you know, whatever is exotic attracts your attention. Right. But it also, you know, may, if it's a little bit too exotic, it may be... uh, Exoticized. (laughs) Attracting, you know, a little fear of hesitation. Yes. And so you've got both dynamics working as a black and white couple going to Japan. And that was partly my point, too, and I didn't, I meant to... 
bring this up to this uh, person who emailed me is that, um, you know, did you check in with your husband? And maybe he... Um, is fully aware that he looks nothing like his husband and and what was one of our points on on the show that I was trying to make before is that I think if you are in a particularly um, interracial type of coupling you're you you usually are aware that you're not going to draw the same people so if you are out as a couple and you play together or you're in those kind of circuit party settings and you are totally different looks how would you ever assume that you know people are going to think that you both of you are equally on the same par some people are going to like you more Mm -hmm. some people are going to be more attracted to your you know, partner more. Then you factor in a place like Japan, which you just express the culture dynamic mm-hmm. that is going on there. And then you have to kind of, you know, layer that in. So maybe his husband was fully aware of all this. And it's, you know, and when you factor all those things in, maybe he was flattered to see. I mean, to see his partner getting so much adoration. And that can be, I'm, he's married to him, and that could be a great thing. Exactly. I mean, assumptions are always problematic. Exactly. Yes. I mean, you look at the way the word is spilled. <laughs> yes. And you know that it's trouble to make any kind of assumptions. Yeah. My guess is that it might even be that the black partner was less interested in the Japanese than right. the white man was. Right, exactly. That, you know, he may not have found them very attractive. Right. He may be much more attracted by white people. Exactly. So you don't have any idea really what's going on in people's heads. Absolutely. Which is what I loved about being a psychologist. I could sit and talk with somebody for a couple hours and not have a clue as to what they were thinking unless they told me. Right. And what just happened in that hour? (laughs) Right, exactly. Um, I wanted to um, move on to one other issue here, and it had to do with... um, you know, escorts and and gay escorts, mm-hmm. and, and you know, oftentimes, um, you know, people hire escorts. Um, oftentimes, when they have more money, or because you know, it's expensive, and that um, sometimes because they're not getting what they want, and it's a guarantee that you're going to get at least a little closer to a sexual experience that you want, and. Um, yeah, so, and then sometimes it's due to, because maybe some feel that they are aging and they can't find somebody, you know, that will want to sleep with them, um, although I think you could these days in many ways, but um, what do you feel about um, escorts and and the, and the, or do you feel like it's an age-old issue of just good old-fashioned prostitution and we should just accept it? Well, I don't think it makes any sense to pay anybody to sleep with you. Sleeping is dull. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Very accurate. Yes, exactly. But, you know, if you are an interesting person. Yes. And if you are willing to recognize that to a lot of younger people, you may be invisible. Right. So you shouldn't allow yourself to start, you know, leering at younger people, thinking that they can't see you. Right. But if you are an interesting person, if you begin talking with people, if you... Uh, offer some kind of mentoring or some kind of wisdom or some kind of interesting conversation, you may in fact find that this sort of friendship can develop in important ways that might be even more satisfying in some ways than sleeping. Right, exactly. The other thing is that as one gets older, it is quite
quite common to hire help. Right. For all kinds of things. Sure. Whether it be bathing or, you know, housekeeping or whatever. Yep. And, you know, if you hire someone who is cleaning your house and also doesn't mind providing some other services, it's very much the same kettle of fish. I love it. I love it. Yes, I agree. Um, if it's someone that is really having a relationship of some importance and it's also you know maybe a friend or someone um, there can be certainly legitimate sex and there can be exchange of whatever is the currency of the realm right right um, you know that's somewhat different from hiring somebody to come in and give you a blowjob Correct, yes. Which could be about as exciting as sleeping. <laughs> right. And, you know, modern technology has made it possible for people to go on cam for or chatterbait and see what's going on in the living rooms and bedrooms of all kinds of people around the world. Right. And um, that may be enough satisfaction exactly. for some people. Exactly. Um, you know... When I was growing up, we always used to wonder what people were doing, and you know, sometimes you'd peep through that little peephole in the, in the <laughs> stall and, and get a glimpse. Now we can see it, you know, in the comfort of our living room with a bag of popcorn. Absolutely, yeah, <laughs> and a cocktail maybe. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I like it. I like it. Um, you have some notes over there. Is there anything that you wanted to address that we haven't, um, or before we um, wrap this up? No, I think I have covered everything that I have on my notes. Well, we should mention that um, you are the author of several books that are all available on Amazon um, that I want to read. Um, you have Midlife and Aging in Gay America, and that was Proceedings of Sage of a Sage Conference in, back in 2000. Um, looks like you've uh, Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual, and Transgender Aging research and clinical perspectives that you wrote in 2006 um, and um, you wrote co-wrote uh, psychological perspectives on lesbian gay and bisexual experiences um, are these um, comprised of uh, many of the essays in your work throughout the years and co-writing with some I noticed you're co-written with some people here most of those books that you just cited are in fact compendiums of other people's work mm -hmm. there's some of me written in that but yeah. most of it is other people's work but they were designed to be resources for folks who are engaging in graduate studies or undergraduate studies in the field and are wanting to learn more excellent we could all learn from it too I think um, yeah um, you are here in New York obviously to celebrate um, you're celebrating the anniversary of SAGE? That's one of the reasons, yeah. Great. And people, um, if you want to get involved in SAGE on any level, um, should they just go to sageusa.org? That's the best thing to do. Great. And There's a wonderful uh, center on, or just down the street from you on 7th Avenue. Oh, wonderful. They have uh, meals, I think, every night. Um, I understand that tonight, on Fridays, they have someone who comes in and sings. Wonderful. Meals are very low cost, and they have a number of other programs all over New York City with um, a variety of different 
activities and uh, support systems and they do I think they offer some counseling and they have mental health services as well as helping if you do need someone to provide uh, in-home services friendly visiting uh, is a full it's service. great and I noticed um, there's Sage and Friends Los Angeles like you had mentioned there's chapters all around um, Sage and Friends in the capital yep. um, even something in Fire Island Pines there's a celebration happening on June 2nd uh, the 26th annual Sage Fire Island Pines uh, celebration which sounds really great yes. um, and you can donate too so people should indeed. go on there as well <laughs> yes indeed to keep yeah. these programs going right I mean with the uh, current administration we need all of the resources that we can get to make sure that our rights and services are, are met and in particular we need to um, get active and involved right you know there's nothing that is worse than uh, the fact that if enough good people don't do something bad things happen wow good words Thank you, Dr. Kimmel. Um, can people follow you? And if they want to follow you, how would they do that? Are you on social media or anything like that? Not really. Not really? Okay, got it. They can go to my website and uh, find email if they want. Okay, which is, what's your website? It would be probably easiest to Google Doug Kimmel. Okay, yeah. Main. People can reach out to it. me if they want, and I can field if people have further questions. Um, Thank you so much, um, Dr. Doug Kimmel. This was um, very enlightening, and I think um, you really brought it down to a, a nice perspective on um, keeping it simple, which I like. Well, thank you. You know, the best thing to do about getting older is to stay active politically, emotionally, intellectually, and physically. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. Well, thank you.